Dr. Everett Vokes has been a leading figure in clinical research in head and neck cancer for a long time, and I met with Dr. Vokes to find out where we are and where we're headed in this disease. He began our conversation by providing an overview of treatment strategy. If you look at the discussions we've had about how do we best cure patients, we start from a background of saying it should be surgery whenever possible to saying that after surgery, patients frequently need radiation to eradicate micrometastatic local disease to saying that, well, if we could only make that radiation be better, more effective, then maybe we could use it as primary therapy, but also be more effective in the post-operative setting. And really, both things have happened. So that radiation therapy, as it's been developed, it seems that more aggressive radiation schedules are more effective, like hyperfractionated radiation therapy, but that at the same time, when adding chemotherapy to radiation, we really improve survival rates somewhere around the 5 to 10% or so range, depending on the scenario. And we've now shown that solidly in the post-operative setting, where cisplatin can be added. We've shown it solidly in the organ preservation setting. And if you look at primary radiation for patients deemed unresectable, then adding a sensitizing either single agent or combination to radiation also results in improved survival rates. So really that I think in almost all settings now, when we talk about radiation, we talk about chemo radiation. What do we learn in terms of long-term side effects and toxicities and complications from radiation therapy and how to minimize those? Very tough because radiation is the curative element in most of the approaches. We enhance radiation non-selectively by giving chemotherapy, and I should say largely non-selectively. There is more mucositis. There is, on the other hand, unclear a relationship with long-term toxicity, how much more long-term toxicity we have. And we are worried about those more than anything. Xerostomia related to radiation to salivary glands, swallowing dysfunction related to muscle fibrosis and stenosis of the structures in the pharynx and down into the esophagus. And if there are ways to reduce those, we would really, particularly if patients are cured, make their quality of life long-term a lot better. Any medical maneuvers to try to minimize? I know there have been agents that have been used against mucositis, et cetera. Anything that panned out in that direction? You are raising a very interesting aspect of treatment because this goes essentially into the area of radiation protection. And so we've now talked about radiation sensitization and how that improves outcome. And now, really, paradoxically, we would like radiation protection. And in a way, we need both. We need to sensitize tumor cells, and we would like to protect normal cells. The two approaches to this that are medically based are amifastin, and there are randomized trials, or at least one nice randomized trial, and it suggests that amifastin can reduce xerostomia. 
It did not reduce mucositis, but xerostomia. There is some explanation for this in that amifacin seems to be enriched in the salivary glands, and so it could protect that organ from radiation effects quite well. And the data seem to support that. However, IMRT came along, and now radiation oncologists say, well, we can simply protect the salivary glands by exposing them less. More interesting, because a little bit more biologically, would be a keratinocyte growth factor, or KGF, where you give an agent to speed up recovery, and KGF would really target the mucosal cells. So you do the injury with radiation, but you have a cytokine protectant, and this would be the equivalent, if you will, of GCSF or of EPO. The data here are just emerging. A group from Duke, Dave Brazell and his colleagues, have published on combining it with chemoradiation therapy, but it's not clear yet that we really understand the role of this drug. And, of course, there is a concern that you could protect not just the keratinocytes but also the tumor cells. So these investigations are usually done in a randomized phase 2 setting and quite controlled and done carefully. What are some of the major phase 3 clinical trials out there addressing the disease that you think are going to shape treatment in the next few years? The largest question in our mind here at the University of Chicago is that you have competing successful models. And so just to elaborate, induction chemotherapy with the addition of docetaxel to platinum-5-FU has been shown to be superior to platinum-5-FU alone. And from that, one can deduce that induction chemotherapy has a role in the combined modality curative intense setting. We covered concomitant chemoradiation being superior to radiation, and so that has a role. And we have fairly recent evidence that adding cetuximab to radiation also increases the efficacy compared with radiation therapy alone. So the three models then are induction chemotherapy versus concurrent chemoradiation versus concurrent targeted therapy and radiation therapy. And what's intriguing to us here is that if you look at what these approaches do differentially, there may be actually ways to combine them quite rationally. Concurrent chemoradiation, for example, will lead to better local control, but not necessarily consistently to better systemic control. Induction chemotherapy, on the other hand, I think largely addresses micrometastatic systemic disease, And so what currently is happening is there are several randomized trials, one which we are leading, and principal investigators Ezra Cohen from University of Chicago, that looks at two cycles of induction chemotherapy given before concurrent chemoradiation versus chemoradiation alone. And a similar trial is being done led by Marshall Posner and his group, and then there's European trials. So these trials ask, in the setting of standard concurrent chemoradiation, does the addition of induction chemotherapy add further benefit? Now, how is cetuximab being looked at in this setting? Cetuximab, similarly, you can now look at, does it add further local regional control and survival when added to concurrent chemoradiation? And RTUG has a study that's accruing very fast, 
that looks at a standard accelerated chemoradiation therapy plus minus cetuximab. And clearly that's the definitive trial that will look at cetuximab in the concurrent chemoradiation setting since cetuximab added to radiation therapy alone has left many of us a little bit uncomfortable because the chemotherapy question wasn't addressed in that trial. Could you review that study and basically what we know about EGFR and cetuximab in head and neck cancer? Well, EGFR in head and neck cancer is very interesting. This is the number one disease that initially probably was discussed as a rational target disease for EGFR inhibition. The great, great majority of head and neck cancer patients overexpress EGFR. The gene is usually not mutated, but the receptor is overexpressed. And cetuximab, but also the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, have single-agent activity, by the way, in a similar range of 5 to 10%. Now, in addition to looking at single agents, it was also clear that EGFR inhibition is usually synergistic when given with cytotoxic agents and also with radiation therapy. Now, Jim Bonner and his colleagues conducted a phase one study adding cetuximab to standard radiation in head and neck cancer. These were patients with local regionally advanced disease. And when they were completed after 15 patients, they reported that this was feasible and that many of these patients had long-term disease control. And out of that then came a randomized phase three trial that had as a control radiation and allowed different ways of giving radiation, hyperfractionated, accelerated, or just standard fractionation. And institutions would pick their favorite way of giving radiation, and patients were randomized to single-modality radiation with or without cetuximab. This trial was reported in the New England Journal, and showed an increase in disease-free survival and overall survival favoring the addition of cetuximab and basically established that cetuximab was an effective radiation sensitizer in this disease. Now, the weakness or criticism about the study is that the control arm was radiation therapy alone, and in 2007, 2008, that is not what we would do anymore. We would now want a chemoradiotherapy control arm. But at the time that this trial was initiated, that was still an acceptable approach. And the proof of principle, therefore, has been accomplished. Where that leaves us is to say, well, there may be a group of patients that should be treated with cetuximab and radiation therapy alone. But it leaves open the question of how do we best integrate it into a concurrent chemoradiation approach? Is there a way to integrate it so it's given following induction chemotherapy to a group of patients? And those are the questions we now need to address. What do we know at least about safety issues in terms of integrating cetuximab and chemo and radiation? Neil, it's a very safe way to integrate a systemic agent with radiation. Cetuximab as a single agent will cause acne form rash. There is concern that dermatitis resulting from the radiation given to the head and neck area could be exacerbated. That's probably the case, but hard to measure. 
And the data that exists to date clearly indicate that this is a very safe agent to add to radiation. There seems to be little increase in mucositis. And in terms of long-term morbidity and side effects, although with the caveat, as mentioned earlier, that we do not measure them with great precision. What do we know about predictors of response to cetuximab in head and neck cancer? We've seen some exciting results, particularly in colon cancer, in terms of KRAS. What do we know about predictors with head and neck? We know almost nothing. It's disappointing. If we look at molecular features that would allow us to categorize head and neck cancer patients, there are some hints that ERCC1 may be significant, much like it may be in lung cancer. EGFR overexpression does not seem to allow us to select patients in any way because it affects the great majority of patients. Mutations do not exist. The fish testing for the EGFR gene is going on, and there may be a role for that. But at this time, unfortunately, we have to use clinical selection factors to determine what patients should get what treatment. I'm curious how you make some of these decisions in a non-protocol setting. Let me just begin by asking you, what are the situations, if any, where you integrate cetuximab into therapy off-study? So off-protocol, what's attractive about adding cetuximab to radiation is that it's well-tolerated, and we know it's a radiation sensitizer. So the kind of patient where we would think about doing that in a standard setting would be the kind of patient where we would feel that giving cisplatin or a concurrent chemoradiation approach is too toxic and that the patient would likely not tolerate it, or patients with lower stage disease where the indication for combined modality therapy may be a little bit more marginal. So to translate that, we're talking about patients that are somewhat older, that may be frail, that may have comorbidities so that we would be reluctant to give them chemotherapy, and that is a group of patients we would consider giving cetuximab with radiation. Similarly, there could be stage 3 patients that were included in the trial published by Bonner that may be overtreated if one were to give them induction chemotherapy or one of the more heavy chemoradiotherapy regimens. And that's a group of patients then we would be quite comfortable addressing the addition of cetuximab to radiation and offering that as our treatment. What about in farther advanced disease, recurrent metastatic disease? Is there a role for cetuximab? Recurrent head and neck cancer is interesting. There are really probably two groups. The first is patients who recur and the disease is in the head and neck only, and you might be able to cure some of those patients. And that is a group of patients that needs to see the surgeon, and doing a second or sometimes salvage surgery may be indicated, and some centers such as ours and some other institutions, would consider a second course of radiation for that group of patients. More frequently, there will be the second group of patients that is unresectable, clearly has too large of a local tumor burden or involvement of structures that can't be resected and radiated a second time, or present with metastatic disease. And in that setting now, Chemotherapy has been the standard for many years. There's been repeated trials 
that have compared agents or looked at one combination versus another, and never have we had a positive trial for survival until the so-called extreme trial that Dr. Vermorken and his colleagues presented at ASCO 2007. And that trial compared cisplatin and 5-FU with or without cetuximab. And it showed a two-month gain in survival through the addition of cetuximab to chemotherapy and really was the first trial in my career as a head and neck oncologist that actually improved survival in the recurrent disease setting. So that first-line chemotherapy for recurrent or metastatic disease, I think, should include cetuximab. What the trial does not address is that cisplatin and 5-FU is not necessarily the regimen we choose to give because of the associated mucositis with 5-FU. And so can we extend this observation of chemosensitization by cetuximab to other drugs, other regimens? And that's a question I think that's in a scientific manner at this point unanswered. What regimens? So you would think of other chemo regimens such as docetaxel, a single agent. You could think about carboplatin and paclitaxel, cisplatin and paclitaxel, and of course the cisplatin or carboplatin and 5-FU combination that actually was addressed with the extreme trial. What about the locally advanced setting? Can you discuss how you approach these patients off-study? Locally advanced, we're talking about T3, T4, N2, N3 disease, some base of tongue, piriform sinus, T3, N0, T3, N1s we would also include in that group. We want to treat that group of patients with curative intent. We put that up as our first goal, cure, and a second goal is organ preservation. And so off-protocol, but based on many years of prospective trials, we feel we want to offer aggressive concurrent chemoradiation as our first approach to that group of patients. And the regimen we use, we've published many times. It's quite intensive. It involves giving paclitaxel, infusional 5-FU, and oral hydroxyurea with twice-daily radiation therapy. It's given every other week. And we repeat that for five cycles for a total radiation dose of 75 gray. And when doing this without any induction chemotherapy added, have reported long-term cure rates in the 60-70% range in this group of patients. And that includes organ preservation. Now, we try to improve on this through the addition of induction chemotherapy on protocol. We're selectively looking at the addition of cetuximab to this regimen or other chemoradiotherapy regimens. But off-protocol, we would recommend a concurrent chemoradiotherapy regimen that the practitioners, and with that I mean the combined modality team, not just the medical oncologist or radiation oncologist or surgeon, but the team as a whole, has experience with and is comfortable with and knows how to support a patient so that during the time of mucositis, supportive care can be delivered, can be optimized, and that the three months, four months of chemoradiotherapy are a time during which that patient receives the support he or she need. What about induction chemotherapy? Are there situations where you utilize that off-study? 
I think that induction chemotherapy is conceptually very attractive when patients have advanced nodal disease. If the tumor has spread from the primary and ipsilateral multiple lymph nodes are involved or there are bilateral lymph nodes and so-called N3 node, single lymph node, but larger than six centimeters in size, we would worry greatly that that is a predictor of widespread systemic micrometastatic disease. And I think that's a group of patients where I would think long and hard about using induction chemotherapy because I think they might benefit from systemic exposure to chemotherapy. But as mentioned, in a strictly scientific sense, that remains to be proven still. You talked about the difficulties of getting patients through chemo radiation therapy. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the clinical pearls of how you approach this specifically, both in terms of prevention and also management? It depends on the patient and how they come in. I think the first step is to talk to a patient about their individual risk factor exposure. If somebody is still smoking, that's not a good thing. It will enhance mucositis during the treatment. And there's actually Canadian data that very nicely show that patients who smoke during treatment have a worse prognosis. In fact, the survival is cut down by about 20 points just by continuing to smoke. So that is a first item of discussion. Similarly, for alcohol consumption, if that applies, we would caution a patient, both in the short term and long term, that needs to be modified. Now, malnutrition is something that probably relates to performance status. So the patient who is very weak, is older or malnourished, that actually might be a patient who could benefit from induction chemotherapy at first so that some treatment is given to the cancer, but there is not necessarily immediate mucositis and one has time to focus a little bit on pepping the patient up, if you will. And if you recall, induction chemotherapy with weekly carboplatin paclitaxel was something that was done for quite a while in lung cancer. We explored that in head and neck cancer. The regimen is very nicely active. Response rates are in the 80-90% range. So it looks like many other induction chemotherapy regimens, but has the advantage of not causing mucositis. And when doing that for about six to eight weeks, we are able to help patients gain weight, get medically a little bit more healthy as we plan the next step of concurrent chemoradiation. Now, during chemoradiation, the question is always, should patients get a feeding tube? And the easy answer is yes. If you do that early on, patients will be able to stay better nourished and can bypass their mucositis through use of a G-tube. The concern we and others have with that is that as patients use the feeding tube, they might not utilize their oropharyngeal structures, and that stricture formation could actually be enhanced, and that long-term function may be more compromised in the patients who do not use, if you will, their normal or affected radiated oral mucosa and oropharynx during the chemoradiotherapy time. 
So we've gotten to a point now where we talk to patients about the need to stay as hydrated and nourished as they possibly can. We tell them that feeding tube support is available, but we don't automatically start with it. We try to delay it whenever we can. And at this point, use them only in about 50-60% of our patients, but not in everybody anymore. What are some of the other biologic agents or new systemic therapies that are being looked at in this disease that you think may have some promise for the future? Well, we look very much to non-small cell lung cancer as a more common disease that has some relationship in terms of similar risk factors, although much more smoking-dominated than head and neck where alcohol and maybe HPV are added now. But many of the agents that work in one disease, be it cytotoxic or targeted, seem to have activity in the other. So of interest to us currently are antiangiogenic agents. We have looked at sunitinib. We're interested in looking at additional agents there. We're looking at some of the newer generation epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors. We are interested in CMET signaling at our institution, Ravi Salgia and Tangi Seivert have looked at that in head and neck cancer, and we're studying a CMET inhibition as a possible target. At this point, EGFR inhibitors are quite well established. And then another combination that Ezra Cohen from our institution looked at was combining erlotinib with bevacizumab. And here, too, finding a response rate of about 15%, but of interest, a group of patients that had disease control for much longer periods of time than we would expect with erlotinib alone or EGFR inhibition alone. And we're talking literally here a year or two of disease control in this group of patients treated with combined antiangiogenic and EGFR therapy. What about BEV or BEV plus chemo? BEV plus chemo is being examined in an ECOG study. That's chemo plus minus bevacizumab. We don't have data or information on that, so I think that's an important current trial. I'm curious, you were talking about the issue of sort of looking to non-small cell to see what might be coming down the line, but I could also see sort of the reverse we just saw at the last ASCO meeting now, cetuximab coming out on the table in non-small cell. What do you think about the issue of cetuximab with radiation therapy for local events in non-small cell? So looking at cetuximab coming from head and neck, where it's a successful radiation sensitizer, moving on to looking at the RTOG study that adds cetuximab to carboplatin, paclitaxel, and radiation, and showing us promising phase two survival data, I think we may be at the early step here of establishing cetuximab in non-small cell lung cancer as well. Clearly here we need a randomized trial because chemo RT is the standard, but the pilot data are encouraging. RTUG states that these are the best data they've presented comparing this trial to a prior trial in non-small cell lung cancer. And we're hopeful to see a randomized phase three trial in the near future here. You mentioned HPV. Can you comment a little bit on what's been seen there and also the types of tumors that are seen? HPV is a very interesting emerging field. 
Of course, it's backed by a lot of epidemiological science, and Maura Gillison and other investigators deserve a lot of credit for that. There is an epidemiologic association of tonsil cancer, base of tongue cancer, so those are oropharyngeal tumors, and about half of those patients in the U.S. seem to have a relationship to HPV, whereas the other half are probably more related to the classic tobacco and alcohol risk factors in head and neck cancer. Now, when we treat these HPV-related tumors, they seem to be more sensitive to chemotherapy as well as to chemoradiotherapy, so they may be more sensitive to our available therapies, and that's, of course, the good news. So the cure rates look to be higher in that group of patients. What data do we have? It's, again, an ECOG study that treated patients with induction chemotherapy followed by concurrent chemoradiation, and it included patients with oropharyngeal and larynx cancers, and the oropharyngeal patients who had HPV in the tissue or whose tumors were related to HPV had higher response rates and higher disease control rates when treated with chemotherapy and chemoradiation. The question that emerges from that is, do we need to prospectively characterize patients? Do we need to test their specimens for HPV? And if they are HPV positive, can we at some point offer them less aggressive treatment? At this point, I don't think the answer to the latter question is known. And personally, I would be reluctant to go to a patient and say, well, we know we can cure your tumor with about a 90% likelihood. Let's try to give you less therapy. I think most patients would like to stick to the treatment that has a 90% cure rate. But I think cautiously over the future years, we can try and address ways to decrease the treatment-related morbidity and maybe either the chemo that's added or the overall radiation amount that's needed to treat these kinds of tumors. I'm curious what are some of the common questions that medical oncologists ask you about head and neck cancer? Where medical oncologists see clarification frequently and call or send us patients relates to the optimal choice of combined modality approach, so induction versus concomitant versus cetuximab. And the honest answer is we don't know. It may be that they all three are about equally good. It could be that one is better than another but restricted to a certain subset of patients, or it could be that really we need to combine two or three of these different approaches with each other. Personally, I lean towards the latter, thinking that there must be some patients where induction chemotherapy followed by a concurrent approach will be superior. But those are really the questions emerging over time. And the second question that we're asked is when patients have failed and recur, what are the novel agents? And here, of course, progress is more slow. I think we can say with some confidence that there is a role for cetuximab in the recurrent disease setting, but we would like to see many more drugs being available there and being useful. And all we can do at this point is to encourage clinical trial participation so we learn more about these agents in advanced head and neck cancer.